Hello, and welcome to the Pad Verb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about movies and crypto with the same guest, Jesse Berger. In the first part of the conversation, Jesse is going to give a pretty comprehensive account of who he is, what he does, how he got to where he is, and how his past experiences have set him on the trajectory that he's on now, moving into the future with crypto. One easy way to describe Jesse is to say that he is a movie producer. But what does that mean? When you go to a movie or you watch a TV show, if you pay attention to the credits, you'll see a lot of people listed. Sometimes you'll see a lot of people listed as producers of one sort or another. But what does that mean? What does a producer do? Those are some of the questions that Jesse and I will address in the early part of the conversation before we move over to talk about the Packet Network or the PKT Network. All right, here we go. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I am speaking with Jesse Berger, a man who wears multiple hats, but I'm told that they are connected. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So when I mentioned you wearing multiple hats, um, your academic training is in film and video. Is that right? Indeed. Yeah, correct. Okay. So the other part, if we're going to take things chronologically, the other part doesn't become relevant for quite a while. So uh, let's let's start with film and video. From film school, where did you go? What did you do? Yeah, I went to Brooks Institute of Motion Picture, uh, studied film in Santa Barbara on campus, actually down in Ventura, California, and graduated back in 2005. And when you graduated, uh, how did your career take shape? Yeah, so I moved down to Los Angeles. I knew that I wanted to do film and produce in particular. And so, yeah, the early part of my career was cruising around Los Angeles, taking meetings. I was, you know, really enamored with this idea of getting a film made and actually came across a script that I uh, really liked and, you know, started meeting with people and trying to get that film made. So that was the beginning was taking this script all through Hollywood, meeting with producers and financiers and various different talent, trying to get this movie made. And that actually led me into a meeting with a burgeoning producer, someone who had uh, a lot of experience, had quite a impressive IMDb resume, and his background was doing comics to film. So that was really where I got first introduced to this idea of comic books as an intellectual property format. And it ended up becoming the catalyst for what became Radical Comics and Radical Publishing. And uh, who was your your co-founder there? Yeah, so my co-founder was a guy named Barry Levine. Mm -hmm. And he had a a storied past as a rock and roll photographer shooting album covers for uh, and and just behind the scenes photography for so many of the greats from Kiss, Queen, Alba, uh, Abba, excuse me, um, uh, Motley Crue. And so his background as a as a visual designer, uh, you know, kind of translated into the media and entertainment space. And so he, you know, became my mentor, and then ultimately my business partner in starting Radical. So this next question, I, I don't want it to come across as insulting. Uh, but what does a producer of a film do? Yeah, for sure. It's actually a really good question. A lot of people don't know 
the difference between, let's say, a producer and an executive producer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so those titles can be blurred a little bit because some people want the title just for the accolade uh, or the credit itself, but don't actually do the job. And so, yeah, so the job is a very in-depth job. If you're talking about the, you know, capital P producer, that role, it really has, and it can have a lot of different faces to it. I'll just give kind of high level various things that it can entail. And some people do all of them. Some people just do some of them, but it generally implies that you've come across some sort of intellectual property. Uh, You could be the person who discovered it. You could be a person who comes on later on in the process and you are essentially shepherding that piece of intellectual property into some form of existence. If we're talking about film, it's a little bit different than if you're talking about television, but generally speaking, it means that you are working on putting together the financing. It means you're identifying the lead, what we call above the line talent. That's going to be, you know, what helps get the project made. So that could be lead actor. That could be a director. That could be a writer. Um, that could be another producer. Uh, it could be bringing in financing and then bringing in distribution. So, and those can all happen at different phases of the project lifestyle, but in essence, the producer is really tying all those pieces together and, you know, bringing the project from idea into a, you know, ultimately for talking about media releasable format. And you mentioned the difference between a producer and an executive producer. What is that difference? Yeah, I'd say, again, some of these are vanity titles and Mm -hmm. if you're putting in enough money for instance to a project you could sometimes dictate what credit you get but generally speaking an executive producer means that you're either a financier or you provided some sort of uh significant contribution to the project Uh, sometimes there's limitations to how many credits are allowed on a particular film so you know you might even be doing producerial work and just end up with a executive producer credit and that can happen. But usually it means that you've provided some, you know, very significant contribution to the project. So for instance, my first two films, one was uh, Oblivion with Tom Cruise uh, directed by Joe Kaczynski starring uh, also Morgan Freeman. And we did that film with Universal and so my relationship to the project uh, my credit was an executive producer but my relationship was uh at the very beginning taking the very first meeting with joe he pitched us the concept and you know radical had greenlit that to become a comic book property a published property and we shepherded that as radical studios all the way into uh, it becoming a major film There were other producers that came involved. Obviously, the studio became involved. My partner ended up getting a producer credit and I got an executive producer credit. I noticed that uh, I was doing some research on that this morning and that the film's director, uh, Joseph Kaczynski, who is also the director of the new Top Gun movie, which is doing quite well, and also stars Tom Cruise, that the film was based on an unpublished graphic novel by the director. Yeah, that's correct. I, I wonder you know, when the film was coming out, why your studio didn't release the novel or the, the graphic novel? Yeah, it's a great question. So, and it has a dis- definitive answer. So basically the way that that project happened, it actually came into existence very quickly. A really cool story, in fact. So Joe had just made the Tron 2 film mm-hmm. for Disney and 
there was a lot of buzz while that film was in the edit room. And while he was in production on that film and throughout post, we were working on Oblivion as a published property. So that was a initially meant to be a comic book, but we realized that there was a lot of talking heads. So we came up with this idea of doing what's called a, what we called an illustrated novel, which is basically a manuscript. And then that manuscript has prose, you know, so you basically write the story as a, as you would some of a, of a book. And so we use that manuscript and the, and the, and the visuals that we developed these incredible, fully painted production rendering visuals and ended up while there was all this buzz on Tron, taking that out into studio pitches in those pitches, we ended up getting a lot of bites from many studios. Uh, the film ended up selling in a bidding war, uh, which is pretty exciting. And because Joe had a multi-picture deal with Disney and they didn't want to lose this director who is hot. They ended up buying the project, which was very weird just because they had just bought Marvel. And so, uh, you know, kind of the upper brass was like, why are we buying a comic book from an upstart comic book company when we just bought Marvel for, you know, billions? So we ended up setting it up at, at Disney and Joe wanted to keep his team that was doing post-production on Tron he wanted to keep them on and roll right into doing Oblivion. So Oblivion was uh, scripted in just uh, incredibly short time period by a very top writer and then segued directly into pre-production and or into a soft pre-production. We ended up switching studios halfway through for like kind of the early, early stages, development stages, and uh, Universal ended up picking it up. And it just went very quickly, right? The pre-production, like hard pre-production and production. Uh, we landed obviously Tom Cruise, um, who is identified for the project very early. And because it went so quickly into pre-production and then production, and there's a twist in the story. So Joe asked for us not to release the book and essentially give away the big twist of the film, you know, right. in advance of the movie coming out. What ended up happening is that our contract with Universal created an embargo on our ability to release content into the world so close to the release date of the movie. Because it's kind of this concept that like you're going to start merchandising a movie and doing your own marketing and advertising, but then they're going to come in and be spending substantial amounts of marketing dollars to promote their movie and they don't want to be butting up against someone else trying to do that. So. We ended up having a seven-year embargo on that in our contract. And so, yeah, so now that that embargo is kind of long completed, we've been talking about that prospect of releasing it. We'd love to put that book out there. The book is absolutely beautiful. It's a really special piece. But yeah, we just need to revisit it. It's kind of a weird story about why it never came into existence, though. Huh. So, yeah, when I read that, I was just making up some stories in my head. And, um, you know, the things that came to mind were it was never really finished. You know, that uh, he had brought to you the, the beginning of a, a graphic novel and that, you know, it, it was so yeah. it was so compelling that it would just went straight, you know, from the page to the screen and the original never got finished. But that's not the case. It, it sounds like it is a finished product. Yeah, it's pretty finished. I, you know, the story changes a little bit. It, it's mm -hmm. one of those weird things because we never, as comic book company, demanded that the movie was the comic. In fact, we always wanted the comic book to be its own thing. Mm -hmm. And the idea when you're adapting 
a piece of intellectual property into a film, there's things that are going to work or television. There's things that are going to work specifically for that media format that are different than what works for a comic book. And so we always wanted the comic book to be its own thing. We always would tell writers and illustrators that there's no budget when you're making a comic book, right? Because right. we're not limited by money. It's just ink and, and words on a page. So uh, when you're making a movie, however, you have all these various different limitations and it's an adaptive experience. So you can just go as big as you want in a comic book. What happened is because the comic develop or the illustrated novel development was so close to the film development, a lot of things were just tailored specifically to our budget in the movie. It was a very large budget, but there's still, you know, practical limitations in how we were going to physically uh, produce that project. So, you know, the manuscript is a little bit different than the film. And, you know, the world obviously never saw that manuscript. So it's still a question in how you deal with that in terms of, having the manuscript be different than the movie or do you just kind of like tailor it to be more specific to the film? We kind of never crossed that bridge yet. Sometimes film adaptations fail in being too faithful to the source material that, you know, they don't really seem to take advantage of the, the different strengths that the film medium has over the, the comic book page or sure. the novel page. So I noticed, and it's been pointed out that, um, in the title sequence of the TV show Star Trek Discovery, there are 20 different producers named in the title sequence. What's that about? Yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar with that, with that particular title sequence. I think something like Star Trek, you know, an iconic piece of intellectual property like that, there can be a lot of different reasons. Again, some of them could be, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, without knowing who every single person is, Yes. You, you, some of the credits are earned and some of them are granted. Uh, you could ask for a producer credit because you're just giving the intellectual property rights, but you have no physical relationship to the production. You could also be the person who physically produces the project and you don't even get a producer credit. So it just really depends. It's very, frankly, political mm -hmm. uh, and, and sometimes indicative of your leverage. You know, the Producers Guild has a, a format and you can submit to the guild and they will give um, kind of a PGA credit at the end of the name to denote the people who had, you know, material uh, involvement in the physical producing of the film. It doesn't mean that they didn't have material involvement in uh, contributing to the film. And so that's the kind of discerning factor is like, did you actually physically make the film? You know, were you on set? How many days were you on set? Um, what was your relationship to, you know, getting the movie made? Did you have approval rights to, you know, the creative or to the logistics, to the cash, uh, to the distribution? So these are, you know, things that Sometimes there, <laughs> there's no way to actually tell who did what unless you know who these people are. But, you know, making big projects requires a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be the people who bring in the money, people bring in the distribution, people bring in the talent. Uh, sometimes the talent wants a credit. Sometimes the talent's representatives want a credit. So it's just, you know, what kind of leverage they have. Uh, you can see projects that are sometimes more difficult to make end up with a lot more credits on them because they just need a lot of contributors to make them happen. And then when you see a movie like a Jerry Bruckheimer movie, sometimes he's like the only credited producer just because, you know, you just need that one heavyweight producer and, and he can do everything else. And everyone's just lucky to have 
you know, a job uh, on one of his films. So it just, it, it really depends. So this might seem like a, a jarring transition. So I'm going to, I'm going to couch it in um, chronological terms. Fast forward a little bit to 2008. We have a housing crisis, not a housing crisis so much as a financial crisis around housing here in the United States and, and globally. And uh, it creates a, a financial catastrophe and lots of big players who see operating irresponsibly got bailed out at taxpayer expense. And a lot of people who were doing their best, uh, but you know, got into mortgages that they couldn't pay, lost their houses. And there was a lot of a lot of anger, a lot of resentment over that. And somebody operating under the pseudonym of um, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote a white paper for something called Bitcoin, uh, basically to create money that the government didn't control and which couldn't be uh, inflated into oblivion and which would be just sound money under the control of the people who used it and depend on it. Uh, and that started us down the road to today, you know, where we have thousands of different cryptocurrencies and lots of different applications for them. Most of them probably will never amount to anything, but hopefully a few of them will recover from our, our current situation and, and go on to do something amazing. Uh, what's your involvement in that side of the story or that, that piece of our developing economic and technological history? Yeah, it, it's, it really is a cool turning point. And if you go back to that time period, you know, this was actually right around the time when my entertainment company got funding. Uh, we raised our first funding. Actually, we actually got our first funding in June 2008. So it's just a couple months before, you know, the kind of explosive uh, events of September 2008, kind of the beginning of that recession. And my company was well-funded as a entertainment company. And actually what's also happening during that period, this is also when, you know, the iPhone, evolu early iPhone evolution was happening. Most people were using Blackberries at this time. Um, you know, we we're just getting into touch screens and, you know, the technology that we were using at this time was pretty rudimentary compared to where we are today. And it's just an incredible advancement that's happened over the last 13, 14 years. And so from my standpoint, I didn't quite get into the crypto side of things until, or start to become really aware of it, more acutely aware between 2013, 2014 is when I really learned about Bitcoin. But I was very much aware into digital applications, you know, intellectual property, sovereignty over data. Like these are things that I was you know, very much aware of and working in, but from the context of the media and entertainment space. So I was just more aware of Bitcoin as this like super volatile, you know, asset, if you will. I remember looking at it when it was around $400. Uh, I saw it go up to $1,000 and then I saw it go back down to $400. And I was like, wow, this is really volatile. I don't know. <laughs> you think I, that's volatile? <laughs> If I, yeah, exactly. I don't know, you know, if I, if that's where I want to put my money. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't have a close relationship with it until around 2017. And so I am definitely aware of the, of the lineage of it. Uh, but in 2017, I was looking at the business of media and entertainment in a way that I saw an acute issue with distribution and with transparency around revenue in the in the media and entertainment space actually ties back into what happened with my movies my big movies uh oblivion which came out in 2013 and then hercules which came out in 2014 the movies did you know hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in the box office 
and uh, in global revenue. And then our company saw zero dollars in back end participation, even with, you know, our back end should have been cash break even on some of our on some of our definitions. And we just never got paid a dollar. And so I was just like, how is this possible that, you know, a movie can make this much money well beyond the budget and amount of money spent? And somehow the content creators are just getting an absolute goose egg. And I felt that if there was transparent accounting and the project actually lost money, then I'd be fine with it because you could just really track the money. But when you get like a 80 page royalty statement on paper and you can't see the formulas, you can't really audit the revenues. It's just incredibly difficult to understand what happens with these, you know, massive influxes of revenue and all the people who have their hands in there. And then just the propensity for, you know, these definitions in a very long multi-hundred page contract to be translated into some sort of formula uh, within the financial waterfall, you know, for there to be error, for there to be mistakes, you know, it, it was just kind of, you know, something that popped into my mind as being problematic. And that's kind of when the explosion around not just cryptocurrency started to happen, but where this conversation around the value of blockchain started to hit like kind of the public. And it, it came across my across my world. And, and I was like, wow, what if we could create a distribution platform that used blockchain for transparent, you know, transparent accounting? And there was just a real way to ensure that you could see how much money was made down to the penny with no uh, risk of error. And if you could have that be done in an immutable way. So that was my introduction to it. And that's what began this like path, this kind of like alternate path that I've been going down in the media and entertainment space on one side and then in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space on the other side. So from about 2015, um... I noticed that people were getting very excited about the the blockchain in general, not just Bitcoin, because up to that point, there was no distinction to be made really between Bitcoin and blockchain. But I, I noticed that some people were really catching blockchain fever and getting almost, you know, messianic about it. And, you know, you'd ask them, I would ask them, what is blockchain? And they'd say, oh, it's, it's like a transparent, unalterable public ledger. And I'm like, hmm, that's not really sparking my imagination. Can you say more? And no was generally the answer. I mean, they had this really clear and exciting vision that they couldn't articulate in generally accessible language. And uh, it wasn't until really NFTs really took off that, you know, applications for the blockchain other than just as a store of value became, you know, more widely understood. And I know there's a lot of other things like, like uh, what you're describing, you know, transparent accounting on a big scale uh, is similar to uh, VeChain, which is a, uh, I think it's a Chinese blockchain, but it is, it's dedicated to tracking uh, the movement of products or pieces of products through a supply chain, you know, because it's a very complicated journey for a, a piece of a product to move across the world to get incorporated into another bigger product, which then gets repackaged and sent someplace else. And it's, it's very easy for people to steal, you know, from a very complicated uh, supply chain interaction like that. It's possible for things to get lost and blockchain can help with that. You haven't said much about uh, the packet network yet. And I should say packet is capital P, capital K, capital T. And I've been reading it PKT network until I heard it pronounced, uh, I think, 
by Vishnu as, as Packet. Mm -hmm. But there are, to my mind, an understanding similar projects like uh, the Helium network, which is using blockchain and uh, special uh, routers to basically provide network coverage, like internet access via their network. Uh, there is Theta, which is like like SETI at home, where you're you're renting, you're not renting out, but you're donating your your spare computer capacity to help search the sky for radio signals. But with Theta, it's uh, you're donating your unused uh, CPU cycles to transmit video over the web. And Packet Network, it sounds similar to both of those in that uh, individuals are using their home computers and graphics cards to mine the the PKT token, but that this is somehow facilitating broadband internet access without going through a, an ISP. And I, I don't quite understand how that would work. So I'll stop there and, and help you or ask you to clarify that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll give you just a little context on it. So first off, the thing that really enamored me with blockchain was this idea of smart contracts. Mm -hmm. And it ties back into the film and entertainment space, because when you make a project, I mentioned the royalty statements that you get from a major studio, usually independent films uh, will use what's called a collection account. And a collection account is uh, set up at uh, you know a trusted third party. They receive all the money for the project into their bank account. And then you submit a contract that's signed by all of the parties who have a beneficial interest in the revenue on that project. Everybody signs and agrees to a financial waterfall you know, off of dollar gross. And then, you know, who gets down into the net profits, for instance. And once that contract is submitted, money comes in and it's doled out according to this, this revenue stream that everyone's pre-agreed to. And it's a very cumbersome contract. It's, it can take up to a year or more sometimes to get these contracts drafted. You need various different guilds who could be signatory to it. There's lawyers, you know, that you're navigating with. There's all kinds of different people who are beneficiaries and certain people are going to be signatory. Some people are just beneficiaries and you have to review everyone's contract with the project and then translate that into the contract with the, you know, with the collection account. So I love the idea of cryptocurrency as a, with smart contracts and this idea that you could pre-negotiate everyone's revenues, uh, people could hold a token that would entitle them to a percentage of revenue and they could be automatically paid. So I was really excited about that prospect. That was what initially got me, you know, into, you know, cryptocurrency back in 2017, 2018, like from a, you know, very specific, Hey, we're going to do something here. What we realized though, is that if we were going to have dollar one be accounted for that dollar one if it's coming from a major distributor, like if you're getting a royalty check from Apple or uh, getting a royalty check for Amazon, you're just having to trust that Amazon or Apple is giving you accurate information. They don't actually share their data with you. Uh, so you just get this royalty statement and say, hey, this is what we sold. Here's your cash. And it's generally, uh, sure, I'm sure there's a way to audit it, but it's not an easily audible you know, track. So if you could have the distribution actually taking place directly onto a network, that network had a wallet associated with it, the payment all stayed within that ecosystem. And then that was tied in directly with a uh, smart contract of some 
sort that would pay people out per the pre-agreed waterfall, then you would be able to actually account for dollar one revenue. So that was the context was like going in, how could we build this? And we just realized that you just had to keep going lower and lower in the stack uh, as, as it related to the network where you can't use another network. You can't, you know, use another distributor. You need to have it all in one place. It needs to be kind of holistic all the way down to layer one or even layer zero, if that's depending on which context you're, you're speaking from. So what became the genesis of what's packet network today was to build a high speed data network that would allow people to actually get on the internet and have a wallet associated with it so that eventually content and media could be distributed across that network. Payments could be transacted and smart contracts could, you know, govern the revenues associated with intellectual property or media distribution. That was selfishly what I wanted for, you know, my media interests in, in particular with radical. And it actually began with some very interesting characters. One of my first contacts was Vishnu, mm -hmm. uh, Vishnu Sisai. So, you know, he was on here, uh, I guess a few weeks ago and he is a brilliant mind, uh, mathematician. Also, as you mentioned, has an interest in media and entertainment as well. He's a film lover. Uh, he's produced and directed and starred in a couple of things. And so fight choreographer. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. he's got an incredible resume yeah. and a very creative guy. And so we got together and just, you know, had so many things to share and really started talking about what it would look like to build this kind of network. Uh, There's, you know, several other people involved early on, including my brother, Josh Berger, and we started mapping this out and it led us to this concept around uh, mesh networking as a mechanism to build a decentralized uh, network powered by the people. We kind of thought of this concept was if you were going to build a big media network and you wanted to compete with the biggest, uh, you know, internet service providers or biggest media companies in the world, you would just need billions and billions of dollars. But if you look at what Bitcoin accomplished, you know, it's larger than, you know, three or four of the top financial institutions in the world combined, and it's powered by the people, it created this, you know, this interest in people powered networks, that if you replicated something of that sort around media distribution or internet connectivity, you could have at least the prospect of building a very large global network that was powered by people at the edge, people in their homes and businesses. And so this idea of how do you get people to do things, you know, you, in our belief, either need to believe in something really holistically, like you just are going to put your effort into it. You're just going to be involved. You're going to, you know, donate your intelligence and, you know, converge on this idea, or you're going to get paid or both. Uh, you're going to get paid to do it. And so we started thinking, okay, well, could we create an economic incentive for people to allocate their resources that they have to build a network essentially powered by the people? And that's when we learned about a technology called CJDNS that was built back in 2011 by a very young at the time, but highly intelligent individual named Caleb James Delisle. He's a security analyst. Uh, mesh networking expert and cryptographer. And he had built and developed uh, and released this code that essentially lets people get on the internet without requiring an internet service provider to issue an IP address. And 
if you have an IP address and someone else has an IP address, it allows those two nodes to connect to one another. That's the basis of mesh networking. And so if we added an economic incentive to running these CJDNS nodes, you would at least have the mechanism to build a very large network powered by the people. So that was kind of the genesis for what became the packet network, where it differs from projects like Helium, for instance, is packet is focused on being a high speed data network, whereas Helium is, while they have aspirations in the, you know, getting into high speed and 5G, you know, basically 99% or 99.5% of their network right now is focused around IoT. It's not a fast network. It's actually a lo-fi network in particular because they can move data very far distances. And um, the similarities is obviously they've built a decentralized network that's powered by the people. People are contributing resources from their homes and offices. They're you know deploying antennas and infrastructure to build up the network. So it's very novel what they've created. We have a huge amount of deference and respect for you know having built such a large and formidable network. And our intention is to build and participate in the building of a high-speed data network that actually can get people on the internet and can give people the the data speed and throughput that you need if you actually have an internet connection today. So you are speaking and mixing vocabulary from two different domains. One is the the crypto domain, which I'm following pretty well, and the other is the um, the, you know the Hollywood finance domain, which I don't know at all. So you've made multiple references to uh, the financial waterfall, and uh, I had never heard that term before this conversation, so I just looked that up. And the short definition that I got from Investopedia is waterfall payment structures require that higher tiered creditors receive interest and principal payments, while lower tiered creditors receive principal payments after the higher tiered creditors are paid back in full. Yeah. So basically, it's a hierarchy of who gets paid first. And, you know, it's, it's basically the, the pecking order. You know, the, the, right. the biggest wolf eats his full his fill before the lower ranking wolves get anything. Um, Parker in the chat asks about IoT. You mentioned that. That's Internet of Things. That's basically microprocessors being embedded because they're getting small and cheap and ubiquitous. They're embedded in just about everything. And, uh, you know, if they're communicating with each other, that creates a whole new network or a whole new Internet. But it's not people communicating. It's devices communicating with each other. So that's the Internet of Things. Uh, Parker also asks... Are there any examples of people using the crypto slash smart contracts in the media industry, or is your intended application of it the, the pioneering effort? Yeah, it's an awesome question. Actually, when we first started, when the, this group of individuals first started going down this path, it was really frustrating time because it was early 2018 when things really started to coalesce and we started to you know get a lot of traction with what we were doing. And just almost every single week, a new white paper came out and a new cryptocurrency, you know, token came out that was like, hey, we're going to be the new movie project or the new movie token or, the, you know, the we're going to do entertainment on the blockchain or something like that. And so, yeah, it was just like, OK, there's a lot of people thinking like about this. This is 2018. The idea of NFTs wasn't like, a, you know, really in the zeitgeist to the extent that it is today. So it's just people were talking about smart contracts but not in the context of, you know, particularly an NFT, even though it's, that technology somewhat existed in a more rudimentary sense. So no, in no way were, uh, was the packet project meant to be the de facto first mover in that world. In fact, there's a bunch of other projects that are doing that at the, uh, let's say like B2C 
level really, really well. But what we realized with Packet that no one was doing was creating a layer one blockchain that is specifically uh, involving bandwidth. And there's a very key and important distinction around what is a layer one and also what is proof of work. And Packet is the first and only layer one blockchain that's a bandwidth based proof of work. And so it differentiates itself, you know, some of that's just like technical jargon, but what it actually represents is very significant and is a key differentiator between projects like Helium, which, you know, mentions that they have a proof of work, but it's actually not a true proof of work because proof of work generally, and I'll say this in the most like layman's terms, generally denotes that the work going into, you know, consensus on the blockchain is actually what creates the currency itself. And so in the case of Helium, their coin is pre-mined and essentially their proof of work is a faucet that passes out the coins to people who perform certain functions in the network. It's still a novel mechanism for distributing, you know, let's say their tokens, but it's not a true proof of work in the, in the sense of the words. And it implicitly is a centralized way of, you know, doing blockchain versus the way that packet network set up, which is it is a true proof of work. There's no pre-mined tokens or coins. It is mined from you know block one. Blockchains turned on. All the people who are actually running the software are mining and earning the tokens. There's you know it's a completely fair mine, and it's deterministic of your contributions to the network. How much bandwidth you're pushing into the network is how many coins you know you'll end up mining in every 60 second block on the network. So that was the basis for how Packet was set up and just some of the differentiating factors between you know something like Helium. Before I ask you another question, I'm going to take just a minute and talk to listeners, people like Parker who, you know, might not be catching all of the nuances of what you're saying. Sure. Proof of work. Say Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a proof of work protocol and when you say with Helium, you know, a lot of their tokens are pre-mined, a new Bitcoin, you know, gets created when people around the world or computers around the world are doing these fiendishly difficult calculations to try to, you know, solve a complex problem in order to basically enter a lottery to see who gets picked, you know, to be the minter of the next block. But everybody's doing these, these computations. But if somebody wants to make a lot of money, basically in crypto, you can create a new project and you can mint a whole bunch of tokens before you know the public has any access to it whatsoever and these get distributed to the founders of the project and some of their investors and maybe their friends or whoever and then you know there is some some hopefully most of the tokens are still yet to be minted and um you know they, they either get minted through proof of work or a proof of stake process by people who are investing you know after the the project has begun but those pre-mined tokens that's like a freebie. It's like the, the community didn't have any participation in the creation of those. That was all just done upfront and distributed to privileged players in advance. Like before the game starts, there's a whole bunch of people who have already got a big score up on the board, mm -hmm. you know? So I've spoken to people who are very passionately against this, you know, and, and of course they're championing blockchains where there is no ICO, you know, no initial coin offering where there's a bunch of stuff that was already created that gets distributed. They prefer a situation where the people who are generating or who are receiving the benefits 
of this process are the ones who are actually participating in it meaningfully from the beginning. Yeah. And that's their argument for proof of work. I mean, there's, there's an environmental argument against proof of work, but I'd rather sidestep that you know, for this conversation. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just to add to that, I think mm -hmm. that the unique aspect of proof of work, again, sidestepping the environmental factor is that it is viewed as a fair distribution of the coins because it, as you said, it's whoever is a contributor. Right. And you actually have to be contributing real, you know, verifiable resources. Uh, in the case of packet, you literally need to be allocating substantial computer processing and bandwidth like meaning the computer processor needs to have bandwidth connected to it substantially uh not just download bandwidth you need to have specifically upload bandwidth connected to it you know on the mining side and then there's actually another mining side called block mining so in packet there's actually because it's building a network which implies that data is being sent and data is being received so anybody can be a sender of data, meaning like you can set up your, your computer. We've see people set it up on an Android phone and you can run the software and it will send data packets into the network. And then on the receiving side, it's actually a much more complex configuration. You need to have a large amount of ability to receive bandwidth. Essentially, all those senders are sending you data and you need to have the ability to receive large amounts of inbound data. And then you're processing that data and working to win blocks. This is a very rudimentary way of, of talking about it. But that idea of people sending data, people receiving data, it simulates a network. And all of a sudden that network becomes highly valuable for actually moving real world data through that, through what's now the packet network. That, that work, uh, that proof of work, sending and receiving data, uh, essentially mints the new coins and the participants in that are earning payouts every 60 seconds. So that's the reward mechanism that is being fostered as a result of the blockchain. And then by virtue of that happening, because the proof of work is directly tied to bandwidth, that means that it's actually deterministic, meaning like you can actually verify that somebody was connecting real bandwidth to the network and they're getting paid for doing so autonomously by the network. There's no essential issuer. There, in the case of Packet, is no company, there's no investors, there's no founder shares, there's no pre-mined coins. Like it just was technology that was turned on and anybody and everyone who wants to participate can. And everyone who's been participating has been you know, compensated in the currency. And so it's just been a really unique way of setting things up you know, which is a lot different. It's not to say one's necessarily worse or better that you know, people have opinions on both sides but you know the early participants in this network wanted to do something where it wasn't viewed as some sort of like centralized you know entity you know starting and um averting you know ideally you know some of the let's say legal pitfalls that are, i think exist for a lot of these um these tokens that get created so just from a jurisdiction standpoint it's just this autonomous network that just exists in the world anyone can participate there's no owners and uh and and i think that's a really cool way for there to be a level playing field for anybody to come in and participate so you mentioned earlier and your your most recent uh answer sort of reiterated the notion of uh, code as law which we haven't mentioned explicitly in this conversation, but it's something that we've been referencing, which is the idea that, you know, a, a normal contract or a, you know, a, say a 20th century contract is words on a piece of paper. It doesn't really do anything. 
people will look at it, read it, agree what it means, and then take action based on it. But it, you know, it's just a piece of paper. It doesn't do anything. Uh, a smart contract is encoded. It's executable. When certain conditions are met, certain actions will be taken and no human is required to assent. You don't have to get a judge's approval. You know, lawyers don't have to talk about it. It just happens. And I, I think you were referencing that sort of functionality when you were talking about how people who are participating in the, the packet network are being rewarded in, in the packet. I, I think you've been saying token, but but packet is a level one, right? You do have your own blockchain. Yeah, it's a coin. So it's a coin, right. Okay. Yeah, we differentiate, you know, the uh, within the packet, you know, within all the language within the packet ecosystem, we delineate the difference between a token and a coin. Some people, it's interesting just say, oh, it doesn't matter, but it does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> there, There is no ERC-20 coin. Those are all tokens. They're all running right. on somebody else's blockchain. Yeah, there's, it's a huge difference. I mean, I could later today, knowing nothing, really, I could create my own crypto token. That's right. You know, it's, it's no mean feat to do that. To build a blockchain, that is a significant activity. But this whole notion of the smart contract, and you know, you prefaced all of this way back near the beginning of our conversation by talking about how, you know, here your studio was the originator of the project that became this big blockbuster film starring Tom Cruise and, you know, these great special effects and, you know, a, a really big production. It originated with your your group and yet you know, the money didn't trickle down to you. The the players at the top of that hierarchy ate their fill and there was nothing left over. So you know, you said that the contracts are these hundred, multi-hundred page things, which are really obscurantist. It's really, it's as meant, it's as much meant to hide the operations of the contractual obligations as really explain them or detail them. You know, that's that's part of the, the function of, of just legal language and, and lawyers is to exclude just common sense judgment from the realm of the law, because it is couched in this very specific and uh, jargon heavy lingo that is impenetrable to people who haven't been trained for years and how to read it. And I forget who I'm, I'm stealing from here. I read this from somebody on Twitter that uh, a smart contract, I mean, to understand a smart contract, you have to understand both contracts and code. You know, it's, it's not more transparent than a normal contract. It's far less transparent. You know, unless you understand the underlying code, you still have to take somebody's word for what's in the contract. So I, I wonder what your response to that is. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, and I, I think that I, I hope that the future, this is, you know, maybe a little bit outside of my specific skill sets, but I do hope that in the future, you know, at the same time that you could be quote unquote signing a contract, you could be entering into a smart contract to denote what that entails in the real world. Because you're right. I mean, contracts are just up for interpretation until you get what you thought you were supposed to get or don't. And then there's a dispute. And then you go back to the contract and you try and discern, did you get what you thought and what you thought was in that contract? You know, you're right. Also, that when you look at these very large contracts, whether, you know, a distribution contract with a major studio, you'll have like a 40 page main part of the contract 40 to 60 page main part of the contract then you'll have like a 40 to 60 page writer or addendum that literally is your main contract is let's say in like 12 point font and then the writer is the same length as the main contract in like eight point font <laughs> and it's this minutiae of definition it is the fine print <laughs> it's the fine print these yeah. this minutiae of definitions that actually is language and literally one word or even a comma in at times 
can change the meaning of the sentence and it can be like almost like a trick. And so it's just very tricky until you say, wow, you know, we thought we got a good deal on that. And then you just never get any payment. And you're like, all right, well, probably on page 59 of, you know, the addendum, you know, said something that just meant that we were not going to get paid. So I do love this idea of, you know, what smart contracts represent. And I think that that's the future. And frankly, that was the idea here was not just to create something that was, you know, a layer two or an app that it was actually something that could holistically provide a solution for people to, to participate in. It's kind of like, um, and I love the example of like YouTube, for instance, because that's when you look at a platform, that platform success was based on what the participants in that platform made of it. They were given a set of tools, which was like a front end viewer a backend dashboard, and then your own creativity basically powers your channel. And then they gave you monetization sources that, you know, based on your success, based on your ability to attract users, you can end up making money. And that became a business that became the basis for people to start businesses. You know, that was the, what, you know, the original influencer. And now it's a career. (laughs) I think that the issue today is the only way that you can distribute content is that you're beholden to a very small list of major, major gatekeepers. They give you access to all the people in the world for distribution. And that limitation really kind of curtails a creativity and it curtails commerce because you have a small number of people who are determining what a large number of people are allowed to see based on their own and it's influenced by their own taste. You know, now we have, you know, these major platforms do have a lot of data, but, you know, the data is based on some sort of gatekeeper bias. And so are we really able to see all the content that the world should see if a small uh, number of people are making those determinations and small, it's thousands of people, but, you know, they're the ones who are determining what billions of people get to see. So that was the, you know, the main idea to create a platform, to create a tool set. And to literally give that away to the world in the case of packet, like I'm not an owner. I just happened to be a founding community member. I was there very early in the idea stage. I was one of the co-authors of the white paper on looking at how to build this type of network that would essentially give people the internet for free and let people just pay for how fast they want their internet connection to be instead of paying for access, pay for speed, and then have that be the basis for a new type of distribution platform where you asked, uh, you know, one, one of the comments was, are we the first or are we, you know, in what way are we, you know, creating this, this type of tool? The idea is actually that we just create a platform that anybody can use that nobody owns and that various different projects can take advantage of in the same way that various different content creators took advantage of the YouTube platform and turned it into what it is today. So the goal here is that there could be many different channels, uh, many different business models, many different sub distributors that can use the packet network to create this kind of like vibrant ecosystem of content distribution. And by the way, content distribution is not just specific to media and entertainment, but, you know, anything that utilizes the Internet, that content could be marketplaces that content could be, you know, any type of administrative system. So just whatever way that the internet can be used, that these platforms and dashboards and distributions, you know, can be repurposed by by anybody. So assuming that the packet network project uh, stays on track and it hits its milestones, 
say, five, ten years from now, when the project is mature, if somebody wants to use it to get online, presumably they'll still need a modem, right? I mean... Yeah, so the way it works is actually, it's super interesting, and this is actually coming sooner rather than later. The way it works is the internet is always from one point to the next. So it implies from like, let's say when the internet was first like kind of imagine, you know, is basically mostly run over telephone lines because that was the way that, you know, everyone was connected. So the first kind of connections was like multiple universities connecting to one another. That was kind of like this first kind of like public connection. And so the idea here is that there's always going to be somebody who has connection to the internet. We're not actually, you know, pontificating that there's going to all of a sudden be internet coming from nowhere because that doesn't make any sense. The idea is that there's always going to be some type of internet connection. And then what that person's capable of doing, person or business, for instance, who has available bandwidth is able to then syndicate that connection out to a third party. That would be done through some sort of antenna. Like it could be, you know, just a Wi-Fi sharing antenna. And then somebody then is able to, you know, let's say you're on your iPhone and you go to the Wi-Fi section and it brings up, you know, the various different networks that you can connect to. You'd end up being able to see the packet network there, click on it. And what's happening is instead of you getting onto the internet through that neighbor or that individual providing the connection, they're actually just providing you an entry point into a VPN. And so instead of you actually navigating the internet on their IP address, you're actually getting onto a VPN through their internet connection, which brings you into the packet network. And the way that the packet network functions is you get a baseline internet connection for free. So whatever is available, you're on the internet for free. Now that internet connection could be awful, (laughs) but you're on. And then you have the choice to pay for how fast you want your internet connection to be. So you're paying in either cash or token. You're able to actually pay for speed. And then that is being paid out into uh, people who are providing resources into the network, kind of in in a decentralized market pricing sense. So that's kind of the the master architecture of how the network functions. It's not far off from uh, you know being released. Is it at all similar to say how um, a mobile phone company like Mint, who doesn't have a network of their own, can basically offer you mobile service but at a cheaper price? And yeah, it's it's it's, it's very similar to that in the sense that there's a lot of available bandwidth out there. Mm-hmm. And it's just your ability to connect the dots and give people what they need. And, and, and the philosophy of the project, in essence, is if there's available bandwidth, then it should be priced at zero. <laughs> and you should just pay for priority. Like, you know, you should get baseline internet for free. And you should just pay for how fast you want it to be. And I think it's really interesting because the way that the system is set up today is that you pay for access and you just get whatever you're given. And there's times when you really need a fast connection and there's just nothing you can do about it. And you'd be like, you know, we have the fast pass at Disneyland, you know, it's like, if you want to cut in line, you can pay a little bit extra money. That's how it's set up. So, you know, if I really need something, usually you can pay for priority. You want to go mail something at the post office. You need to get there tomorrow. You pay a little bit extra, you know, you don't care if it gets there in a week, it's cheaper. And I think we're used to that as a society is paying for priority access and somehow we've accepted that the internet is just pay for access and just given whatever your ISP gives you. 
and you have very little choice. Yeah. Some places you have no choice whatsoever. And we've also seen deceptive, you know, marketing where they'll promise you a certain uh, level of service, which you pay for. And it's very rarely that you're getting that service. And if you call them and tell them, hey, I'm not getting this service, it's somehow your fault. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and maybe they'll flip a switch and maybe it improves briefly or they'll send someone out to mess with it and they'll tell you how somehow what you're getting, which is less than what you were told you're going to get, is all you're going to get and you should be happy with it. And so I think that is not fair. I don't think that that's, it's one of the only industries where they just will blatantly tell you something that you're, that's inaccurate and kind of gaslight you over it. And, um, and I think they forget the fact that people are just willing to pay for quality <laughs> just in general. So it's not a bad thing that they provide a baseline crappy service. They should just make it so that you can actually pay for how fast you want it to be and price it in a dynamic market. So that's what packet is foundationally designed to do. Like within the roadmap, it's not all there today, but the roadmap delineates how it gets there. So I've moved around a lot and I've lived in cities and I've lived in the country and I've been at the mercy of Time Warner, been at the mercy of uh, Comcast and their Xfinity network. Right now I'm at the mercy of Cox. And, um, you know, they have these nationwide, you know, packages where you're going to get this much speed, this much bandwidth for this much money. But the network, the actual physical network is not equally built out throughout the country. And they just don't even have the capability of delivering the same level of service to every customer, regardless of what that customer is paying. It's just the network isn't built uniformly that way. They just can't. It is not within their power to honor the contracts that they sign with their customers. I wonder... It sounds like the the packet network would be bringing you know more granularity to the the whole interaction between the customer and the the provider. You know the customer is actually paying for what they get rather than just paying for inclusion in a particular package, which may or may not reflect the actual service that they'll receive. Do you anticipate pushback or resistance from the ISPs, the you know the big players? Yeah, well, just mention the first part of it. So packet has two sides to it, right? So it's providing a service in the sense that you can get on the internet for free and pay for how fast you want your internet speed to be. But the other side of it is that it economically incentivized people to actually bring that internet into various areas around the world. Uh, so whereas humanity generally just expects somebody to give you something that you want, what Packet does is it creates an economic incentive for you to actually be the one bringing something that people need. And I think that's a key factor is how this network scales is that it's got these mechanisms to both incentivize people to participate on the infrastructure side. And then it provides people, you know, the basis for service and connectivity and trying to optimize some of the things that people ultimately need, which is access to network connectivity. And in certain instances, most instances, people want it to go pretty fast when you want to use it. I don't care how fast my internet is when I'm not using it. Um, <laughs> right. That doesn't matter to me. I don't care how fast my internet is, you know, when I'm out of town. I care about how fast my internet is when I'm home and I'm trying to watch TV, you know, or I'm trying to stream something uh, or I'm in a Zoom call and I'm getting packet loss. Those are the times when I'm willing to pay a little bit more, uh, maybe even a lot more, you know, depending on the priority level that I need. And so I think that's really, really interesting. The second part of your question was about how, you know, potentially internet service providers are going to respond to this. 
you know, I can't really predict the future. I think the 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 pervasive interpretation is everyone goes to this negative place where like this is going to be bad and they're going to have a problem with it. I tend to go to a different place about it. Maybe I'm optimistic, but I think that if I'm paying for internet connectivity, that I should get what I'm paying for. And that's on one side, me as a customer. And what I do with my internet, you know, as long as it's within the terms of service, of course, there are limitations to your terms of service, then I should be able to do what I want to do with the internet, as long as I'm not violating a terms of service um, that I pay for. That's at least my philosophy on it. Second part of it is that there's nothing illegal or wrong about sharing internet. If you go down to Starbucks, you can get on the internet. There's lots of people getting access to the internet for free out of Starbucks. There's uh, the ability to pay for internet on airplanes. If I'm at an airport, I can pay by the freaking minute for internet connectivity. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't think that the business model is very different. I think the issue with those business models is that they're very limited to who gets to do it. So why can't anybody who has excess internet capacity do what an airport's doing? And so if the internet service provider says, well, the airport has a commercial line, then yeah, maybe I need to have a commercial line in my home because I should be able to syndicate my internet connection. I should be able to make money on the internet that I'm paying for or the internet that I'm paying for and not using, right? Especially if that creates a distributed network that ultimately improves the network quality in my local area. It seems like a win-win for everybody. In fact, I think it could end up being a overall positive for these network operators if you have a lot of happy customers. Like I don't see why that's such a bad thing. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, you know, if you look at the gig economy, uh, various different examples like Uber, I remember insurance companies having a huge adversity to rideshare. Apparently, you're not allowed to let people ride in the backseat of your car and the driver to get paid for driving somebody somewhere. Like they, that was literally how Uber is set up. It's saying, hey, you pay your insurance, you pay your car payment, you pay your gas. Somebody gets in the back of your car, backseat, which you have. And you drive them down the street and they give you five bucks for the ride. Thank you for the ride. I mean, you're incurring these overhead costs. Well, insurance companies said, well, you're running a business out of your car. And they had to invent an insurance product that allowed people to do rideshare. But that was an innovation that was required for people to understand this like disruption of people all of a sudden driving people around for money. Same thing with Airbnb. It's like you have a house, you pay a mortgage, you pay insurance, you pay water, gas, electric, and you have an empty room. Why can't somebody pay you 300 bucks to stay in your room overnight? It's, you know, the idea that that's all of a sudden like not permissible in a certain city is wild and crazy. And they created an application and entire you know, business that's publicly traded that allows people to do that. And there was a huge amount of adversity in local areas that essentially, and I'm assuming this, I haven't gone too deep into it, but you would assume that like the hotel industry had a huge issue that people were renting out their homes and people aren't staying in hotels. That's the gig economy, people figuring out how to monetize resources that they already have. The next frontier is internet, where somehow humanity has been duped into paying for access to the free internet. The internet's decentralized and free, but access to the internet is not. And all of a sudden it's, you know, the first place people go is, oh, well, it's totally inappropriate for me to share the resources that I'm paying for with other people, which I, I just think I fundamentally disagree with. And so I'm excited to see how the business model evolves because I think that if the ISPs look at the fact that they have a lot of excess capacity, 
and there's a way for them to make money on that capacity, they'll probably end up being the largest beneficiaries of a network like this versus, you know, looking at it as adversarial. I think everyone always looks at a change as adversarial, but I think overall, it should be a net positive for humanity. And, I, and I, my hope would be, since I have no control over it whatsoever, it's a totally decentralized network. I have my hands not on the wheel at all. I would hope that people would look at it as a, a tool to co-op for economic, their own economic gain, rather than something that they need to like fight directly against. Well, I, I could make the other side of the, you know, make the case for the other side of that, but I won't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, there's obviously, uh, you know, there's, of course, you, you know, you'd be naive to think that there isn't two sides to every story. And I think that if we look at the ISP side of it, look, their business model is they're selling gym memberships, just hoping not everyone shows up to the gym at the same time. Right. Right. So they, they're a big benefit. And I actually talked to my local internet service provider, Cox Cable in Santa Barbara. And I called them. I said, hey, I'm paying for Gigablast. It's your highest plan. I'm getting 300 megabits. So, you know, what is going on? This is this terrible connection. And they said, you're connected to a node in your neighborhood that 900 people are connected to. The majority, they actually said like 80 plus percent of all the people in my neighborhood are all on the Gigablast plan. So they actually can't provide everybody with a gig of service. It's not possible. And I was like, well, isn't that illegal for you to sell everyone something that you can't provide? And he kind of was like, mm, I guess so, yeah. you know, but that's just the way it is. I'm not a lawyer. What do I know? Well, as, as Parker pointed out in the comments, the ISPs, when they sell you these plans, if you read the contracts, the language says you'll get up to sure. 300 gigabytes or, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So it's deceptive marketing. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the next side of it is he told me that if I downgrade my plan to the 500 gig plan, that I will get 500 gigs because nobody's really on that plan. So I'll pay less money and get what I'm paying for versus paying more money and not even get what I'm paying for. So I'll actually get faster speed, almost like a 60% or more faster speed for less money, which I switched over to. It's still poor, but it's better than frankly what I had on the more expensive plan. You know, and then everyone's talking about the idea that, you know, you know, the packet network is all of a sudden somehow deceptive when these companies are profiting billions and billions of dollars and not, you know, and kind of misleading the public. So I, I think probably due for a showdown at the end of the day, the network's totally decentralized. And um, with the nature of mesh networking, you don't actually need those ISPs in, you know, to directly participate to grow the network. The network is really powered by the people. And there's lots of different ways to get on the internet. It's not just relying on ISP infrastructure. The other thing that's very interesting is that um, there's a common misconception that the infrastructure is owned by the ISPs. And it's actually, there's a very interesting kind of landmark case between MCI and AT&T, where MCI was selling long distance service using regional operators who were willing to do side deals with MCI so they could provide a long distance service at lower cost than AT&T. And AT&T said, well, you can't use AT&T infrastructure to offer a lower service. And they said, well, then that means that you're a monopoly. And they, you know, so you have to pick one. And they ended up going to court over and MCI famously won that, that lawsuit. And so, you know, kind of the summary on that is that the infrastructure, the internet infrastructure is actually common use infrastructure. It's what the, the networks own is usually this like last mile. It's like specifically going from the pole to the home. 
So if you're setting up your own infrastructure, like if you're just setting up an antenna to receive a signal, then you're not you're not doing anything wrong. And if that signal is coming from source where they're okay with you syndicating that signal, then you're building an alternative edge network powered by the people. And it can be completely separate, you know, gets you to the internet, but it's a separate network than using, you know, potentially the last mile infrastructure for an ISP. This is just kind of like a new world and we'll just have to see how it evolves. It's just very fresh. And a lot of times we'll talk to people about it and they're like, wow, I never thought about it that I pay for the internet 24 seven and I at work half the week and that internet's just underutilized. If I could provide that network and you're asleep six to eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah. And I sleep six to eight hours a day. So at night I could be providing resources and all of a sudden I could be monetizing my unused internet. It's really been a, you know, you just say it to people and watch the light bulb go off in their head. And, um, you know, and I saw the same thing happen, you know, where a friend was in desperate need of money and just was talking to another friend who was saying he's making $4,000 a month driving Uber. And all he had to do was just download the app, jump in his car and start driving and got himself out of basically poverty, you know? And I think that passive income is a super important thing. If you have overhead expenses, if you have unused internet resources and there's a way for you to monetize them, then that should be something people should consider. Alrighty. Well, we are well over an hour, so uh, we'll need to wrap it up. But uh, this has been a, a very educational experience for me. And I'm going to echo something that uh, Parker said in the chat. Blockchain applications that actually have some real world utility are a lot more interesting than just a speculative asset that you hope is going to go up in value. I totally agree with that. It, yeah. it was like in being part of this from the very beginning, it was always around looking at blockchain as an actual tool rather than just how most people are looking at it, which is, you know, some sort of just, you know, transfer of value or some sort of speculative thing that you're waiting for it to go up in value. The actual utility value of it, both from how I approached it on the entertainment side and then now looking at how this network functions and and from an economic incentive standpoint to help build real world utility and getting people on the internet the kind of basic premises how do you get the next billion people online and it's not just underserved people it's literally just the time that you're in europe and your phone's really you know working poorly and you need to get online and you know there's just not a connection and having that having that ability so i think those are the things that get me excited about blockchain and then you hear about all these you know all the trash out there you know over twenty thousand coins and most of them you know don't have that same type of utility they kind of aspire to have something like that but but they generally don't and so yeah so this has been really rewarding to see how this ecosystem's grown kind of approaching it from that stance well jesse berger i've enjoyed our conversation thank you for your time yeah, absolutely. Thank you for yours as well. That was Jesse Berger. I hope the crypto talk wasn't too technical. Uh, I know some of the people listening to this podcast don't have a whole lot of interest in crypto, and yet we talk about it a lot on this podcast. This podcast is not meant to be a podcast about crypto, but so many people who were involved in the various subject areas that this podcast is explicitly focused on are also into crypto. And speaking of cryptocurrencies, you know, we were talking about the difference between proof of stake and proof of work. And we agreed to set aside the environmental considerations around proof of work. It uses a lot of energy. Something that I heard, I think it was on a clubhouse call a year or so ago, and I don't remember who said it. I, I wish I could give them credit, but 
I remember somebody addressing that particular issue and saying, using energy is not a bad thing. It's okay to use energy. That's what it's for. <laughs> what is a problem is adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. There are different ways of generating electricity. Some of them produce a lot of atmospheric carbon dioxide, say burning coal, and others produce very little, say hydropower. When we talk about the amount of energy that gets spent on, say, just mining Bitcoin, and it is a lot of energy, I think we are forgetting that not all forms of energy are equal in their impacts on the environment. And one thing that it's just an, an economic cause and effect mechanism, Bitcoin miners are doing it to make money. They want to lower their input costs. So they go where energy is cheap. Now, for a time, that meant burning coal in China and dirty coal at that. But then China kicked the Bitcoin miners out and they've gone a variety of places. And so they've moved from using coal to capturing methane that's being flared in, in Texas. Methane that otherwise just would have, you know, it, it wouldn't have done any useful work at all. There's also the possibility of using geothermal energy, say in Iceland to mine Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And also, I, I don't think this has actually been done yet, but when the country of El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as legal tender, the president of the country was also floating plans to capture energy from active volcanoes and putting it to work mining Bitcoin. Uh, as I say, I don't, think, I don't think that's gotten off the drawing board yet. I, I think that's still in the daydreaming stage. But there are a lot of sources of untapped energy in this world. And it's really just a matter of finding a way to access them profitably. And if you have to somehow generate electricity and then transport it someplace else to do the work, well, that's an added complication. That's an added expense. But if you can just take your Bitcoin mining rigs to wherever that energy is being produced and use it right where it is produced, right where it's harvested, well, that makes crypto mining a possibility where that energy might otherwise have just gone to waste. So I am not sweeping the environmental effects of Bitcoin mining under the rug. I do acknowledge that a lot of coal, a lot of natural gas, in some instances oil, but not very many. But fossil fuels are being burned in order to do calculations to create cryptocurrencies when, strictly speaking, you don't need to do that. You can just say, boom, these currencies exist. Here they are. No fiendishly difficult calculations necessary. But when you do that, who benefits? Some people are just in it for the money and, you know, whatever makes them money is good. But I think you can hear from the various guests that I've spoken to here in these first eight episodes of the Padverb podcast that a lot of people have a lot of passion and a lot of vision and imagination invested in the various crypto projects with which they are involved. They're looking to build something better. And I think for a lot of people, fairness is high on their list of priorities. All right. <laughs> Enough proselytizing. I'm not selling you anything. I don't think it's necessary to say this, given the conversation you've just heard, but nothing that you've heard in this episode of the Padverb podcast should be considered investment advice of any sort. And with that unnecessary disclaimer, I would like to thank the Padverb team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producer Slava Borisov, who also creates the music for this podcast, and producer Elena Voigt. Thank you all for keeping the pipeline full and giving me something to do. All right. I'll talk to you again in one week's time. Take care.